Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Robert Chow Romero, author of Brown Church, Five Centuries of Latino Social Justice, Theology, and Identity, published by InterVarsity Press in 2020. Robert Chow Romero is an associate professor in the UCLA departments of Chicano Chicano Studies and Central American Studies and Asian American Studies. He received his PhD from UCLA in Latin American History and his Juris Doctor from UC Berkeley and is also an attorney. Romero is the author of several books, including The Chinese in Mexico, 1882 to 1940, and Brown Church. The Chinese in Mexico received the Latina Latino Studies Book Award from the Latin American Studies Association, and Brown Church received the InterVarsity Press Reader's Choice Award for Best Academic Title. Romero is also an ordained minister and faith-rooted community organizer. Hello, uh, Robert, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. DJ, so great to be with you, brother. You know, I um, I'm excited to have you because I actually heard of your your book from an interview I did two years ago, actually. And as soon as I heard about it, I was just I think even on air, I was like, I gotta get Robert on the podcast, and uh, you know, and so here we are, two years later, finally, <laughs> what I've been hoping to to make happen, and it's, it hasn't been on your side; it's just been being backlogged on my side. Um, here you are, so I'm really excited to talk about your book, and, and grateful you for you to be here with us. Likewise. Well, let's get started. And uh, if we can, just why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, yourself, just personally, professionally, a little bit about your background. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born on the east side of town, raised in the suburbs. And uh, my dad's an immigrant from Chihuahua, Mexico. My mother is an immigrant from Hubei in central China. And kind of like, that's kind of the best place to start in getting to know me, I think, is like, you know, my cultural heritages have really shaped the most of who I am. And I also, you know, grew up in both the Latino church circles and um, Chinese and Asian American church circles. And, you know, I've always been fascinated to understand, you know, how do you understand issues of ethnicity and race, like from a perspective of, of faith and of scripture and so as a professor at, at UCLA, like for, for a long time, like my my scholarship and then also but, but like my activism were always separate. Um, so I, I was working as a pastor, always on the side, you know, working with young adults, figuring out what's the intersection of justice and race and Christianity like. And then I was doing my, my activism, I'm sorry, rather my, my scholarship stuff on the Chinese of Mexico. And after I got tenure, one day I was listening to Lauren Hill. Those of you who are kind of old school like me will know Lauren Hill. And in one of her albums, she said, I'm tired of leaving half of myself outside of the door when I make music. And, and at that time, I was like, we were fixing our kitchen and I was full of drywall. And I listened to that. It stopped me in my tracks. And I said, I'm tired of leaving half of myself outside of the door as a professor. I want to bring together my work in, in activism and faith with my academic career and long story short, that led to Brown Church. Wow, that's uh, that's an awesome you know intro uh, to uh, 
where we get to with this book, but also, um, you know, so much what you said, you know, resonated with, uh, with me. So I appreciate that. And, um, you know, I can only imagine kind of how that tension feels at a, at a public university. I mean, my, my academic training, um, half of it occurred at a, at a UC, a public, uh, very public institution. And then, you know, the other at a, at a major research institution. And so that, that feeling of kind of, I don't know, checking, you know, my faith or part of me at the door when I entered, say, the classroom, uh, whether it was when I was engaging in my studies or when I began teaching, it was always something I'd, I kind of felt like, you know, I had to deal with, you know, in some way. And I thought about a lot, you know, right? And so um, I hope that resonates with with several of our, our listeners also. Yeah. it's And it's like a tension on both sides, right? It's like, it's like, you feel stuck because in the university, a lot of times, you know, that part of you is not welcome. And then on the other hand, unfortunately, even in, in, in institutional church circles, a lot of times it's not that the, the justice side is not welcome. So you're kind of like, okay, where do I go with this? Right? <laughs> and, 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 and that's been, that's kind of like, I think a question of the day too, for millions of people, you know, throughout the U S and, and the globe, like how do those two things work together? Faith and justice. Yeah, and I appreciate that's how you really you open the book, and it was really uh, it was really arresting, kind of like grabbed me. You you started with these you know testimonials of of some of your students, uh, kind of their experiences, and it starts to get at this tension between right faith and you know scholarship or scholarly circles or broadly academia, uh, scholarly institutions, right. And this even you know narrows even further down even to the our discipline, right, the discipline that we've uh, you know dedicated our careers to in Chicano, Chicana, Latino, Latino studies. So can you talk about that tension and why does it exist, right? Why is there this tension between faith, but we can get a little more specific here because we're talking about the relationship that Latinos and Latinas have to Christianity. And then, you know, again, also we have this, this uh, broad discipline and community within uh, university circles of, you know, Latino, Latina studies. And there's, there's that tension exists there too. So why is that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, at, at its core, it's because of what I would call the misrepresentations of Christianity over the last number of centuries. Um, I mean, colonialism was a real thing, right? People went around from Europe and England and Spain and different places and Portugal and France, and they went all throughout the world and said, we're going to conquer you and we're Christians. <laughs> and so it's like, it's, it's that simple, right? So, so many people are like, um, if Christianity is about like violent conquest, like why do I, why do I want to be a Christian? Um, but then that's not the full side of the full side of, or, or the, 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 full, the full picture. Um, like as I talk about in my book, there's also been um, simultaneously with that concurrently with that 500 year history of misrepresentation, you have had Latina Latino followers of Jesus in Latin America and in the United States who have challenged all those bad things, who've challenged colonialism, challenged slavery, challenged oppressive gender relationships, challenged like you know, people like Cesar Chavez, right? Challenged the exploitation of farm workers, um, but all in the name of Jesus, right? And and that's why I, I call in the book, you know, Brown Church is like this 500, this 500 year legacy of Latina, Latino, Christian social justice. Um, that is, a, and, and that's a story that has, you know, little been told. Certainly. And with the, you know, kind of these early, 
uh, kind of vignettes that you provide in the introduction, you talk about, you know, some of your, the students that you've, um, you know, come into contact with over the, the years. There's Rosa as the first example. There's a, uh, another student, Carlos, who is a transfer. Uh, he transferred to UC Berkeley. You know, so there's this, there's this tension that exists and it is, it's actually, you, you've seen it work out kind of detrimental in the, the lives of your students. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that um, and what it is you've observed and how students coming from, say, say a faith-based background then come into an academic setting, which is really mind-expanding, right, and perspective and education, all that. But then, you know, when they're kind of, this kind of hits them, this clash between this history of oppression within the church, if you will, right, and then how that's handled in academia, particularly in Chicano Latino studies, uh, how does that impact them? How are they affected by that? Oh, gosh, there's so much deep emotional turmoil. I mean, to tell a story, I was organizing an event with my wife and, and with a student organization around issues of immigration and faith about maybe six or seven years ago. And I remember uh, there was a student that, that, that came to that with, with a friend of mine who was a pastor and an academic as well. And this student, you know, she grew up in her local church. She was a top student, you know, um, just grew up in the setting where faith was really important, right? In in an urban Latino church setting, you know, her parents or you know were, um, you know, faithful people, and faith was like a good thing. Faith had empowered her, right? And faith was like, you know, not perfect, but it was like the Christian faith was what was what was her identity, right, and that of her family. And then you know she she as a star student, she got into this elite school, but in her first classes at this elite school, she's told Christianity is a racist, classist religion, and that's all it is. Christians, you know, are the colonizers, and it's impossible to be a Christian and care about justice. And that threw her into a tailspin, right, emotionally, psychologically. And when I met her, she was literally, you know, going through depression, right, and seeing, you know, a psychiatrist to try to figure out you know, how do I make sense, right, to my parents and to and, and all of my upbringing tells me that Christianity is a positive thing. And now I come to the university and I'm told that it's only a negative thing, right? And and that's a lot of the tension that I've faced, right, as a professor as well. I think in, in Chicano studies, Latinx studies, um, we do a good job of describing, like, the structural problems, systemic structural injustices, like in education and healthcare and so forth. But when it comes to faith, there's just this radical disconnect with the actual Latino community, right? In the United States, for example, well over 80% of all Latinos and Latinas identify with some expression of the Christian faith, over 80%. And yet there's hardly any classes about it, hardly any research. And in fact, as in my experience, right, not with my colleagues, I have, I have some you know pretty supportive colleagues and I'm grateful for that, but like, you know, even bringing up the topic of Christianity is like taboo and, and, and you get a lot of haters just by bringing it up. And it's just so weird. There's a strange disconnect. And that's what I'm, I'm committed to trying to just bring some healthy conversation so we can get past that. Yes. And so there's this experience that, um, that many go through, right. As you shared, 
uh, emotional, right, very deep pain and, and struggle, right? Um, but then also that can be harming to the individual student or even, right, to, uh, you know, the professional that is working through, you know, the ranks, if you will, of the trajectory of going through an academic career. And, and that could be, you know, I don't want to put this all on uh, Chicano and Latino studies. Naturally, I mean, this, this is experienced broadly uh, throughout academia, uh, arts, sciences, you name it, right? Um, but also you mentioned that this, this can, can be harmful to our own discipline, right, in Chicano and Chicana studies in and like how maybe it may steer students or, or potential, you know, colleagues away from this discipline. Can you just, you know, just talk about that a little more? Totally, for sure. Yeah, like, so, you know, let's say at UCLA, right, there is probably 20% or so, I forget the exact numbers, of the freshman class is Latino, Latina, right? That's like thousands of students, right? And yet, how many Chicano studies majors do we have? You know, maybe we have in the hundreds, and that's great, right? But I think when faith, when asked to choose, am I going to choose between the, my faith of my family, the faith that my grandma, my abuelita taught me, and an academic discipline that's going to like where I'm going to feel like at odds with? I'm sorry, I'm just going to choose my family, right? And so I think you know we miss out on thousands of students being able to take our classes, being able to, to major in, in in our courses, and it's really unfortunate. And then we also lose lose out as a discipline in terms of research, right? Oh my gosh, it's just, this is such a fruitful topic, right? Um, basically, you know, there are a thousand stories of faith in the Chicano movement of the 60s and 70s, for example, that have not been told, right? Um, 10,000 stories that have not been told, right, about the role of faith and justice in Latin America. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's our loss, I think that's a great point. You know, it really can have, you know, a silencing effect. And and it very well will be. I think much of it is, you know, unintentional, right? I, I just don't think it's, um, I mean, I've met uh, a ton of people, you know, in just my uh, brief career and experience in academia. And I think, so there's a lot of that, right? That, that, uh, that outcome may not be seen. So I appreciate um, you, you know, bringing attention to that, right? Particularly at the beginning of, of, of your book and, and our opportunity to discuss it. You use a concept of uh, the spiritual borderlands, right, to kind of explain explain the experience of of Latinas and Latinos within kind of the institutional Christian church broadly, right? We're not, we're not this is just not one denomination, right? It experiences throughout, right, that kind of faith based community. Can you talk a bit about that 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 experience of being in a spiritual borderlands, that, that sense of being caught in between? Sure. So when I when I use that 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 term, I'm drawing from Gloria Ansaldúa, right, who wrote about the experience of being betwixt and between kind of Mexican and Texan and slash U.S. identities, right? You know, she was an author from Texas, and you know, talked about this experience very powerfully about what is it like to to live in the, in the Texas borderlands where you feel like, well, to the Americans, I'm not Mexican enough; to the Mexicans, I'm I'm too American, and like it, that can be a, a deeply um, painful experience. And so I said, hmm, that is very similar to the experience that many of us feel being caught in between the borderlands of institutional Christianity and 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 the world, the separate world of, or often separate world of, of justice and activism, right? So like the story of the students, right? Or my own story for that matter, right? It's like in, you know, we, we, we have this passion. We want to 
see things get better, right? We want to see there be we want to see there be more equitable educational outcomes, and we want to have make sure that more people have adequate health care, and we want to make sure that um, racial violence is, is dealt with, right? All these kind of things, and we want to know how to do that also through the lens of our deeply held religious beliefs, right? But a lot of times, we take those desires to many institutional church settings and they say all those issues that's just like a liberal thing that's like a democrat thing oh the gospel is really about only heaven when we die right and then on the other hand when we go to um many times activist circles um or ethnic studies circles again we're told that message that we talked about earlier no it's impossible to be a christian to be a follower of, of Jesus and care about issues of justice, race, justice and race. It's only a colonizer's religion. So we find ourselves metaphorically caught in that spiritual borderlands of, of activism and faith. Certainly. And that, that comes, um, you know, I think it comes as right. A, a shock to, to many, because obviously, right. Our experiences, whether it's in a, a faith-based institution an educational institution are, are so much varied, right? They depend upon our communities, our families, and, and all those things. And so you have, right, this kind of clash of, of some people, right, find, as you mentioned, in this tension between social justice and, say, the way institutional Christian theology is presented as it's, you know, apolitical or it's not about, you know, doing anything in, you know, in, in society necessarily. It's about just waiting for kind of, you know, uh, redemption, salvation, right, in, in the life to come. That runs counter, right, to the way, you know, many people kind of think or, or maybe what their faith has inspired them, maybe the way that they they were raised, you know, reading the scriptures and stuff like that, right? Oh, it's counter to the Bible. <laughs> it's counter to 2,000 verses of the Bible that talk about why all that stuff is important, right? Mm-hmm. I think, like, I mean, that's where in the book I also talk about um, the unique social justice theology that has come out of Latin America and out of um, the U.S. among Latino and Latina theologians. And what most people don't realize is that there is a 500-year history of what I call brown theology. There's a 500-year history of racial justice theology in Latin America and among U.S. Latinas and Latinos. So that just like it's a shock to most people. But the earliest discussion of race and justice came from theologians in Latin America in the 1500s. Um, Montesinos, Las Casas, who saw the Spanish conquest and said, "Uh uh-uh, the conquest is opposed to Christ. And they said things like, God gave Spain the opportunity. And and again, these were theologians, these were were pastors, these were priests in the 1500s. And I might add, even before the Protestant Reformation, um, Brown theology was born, but they said, God gave Spain the opportunity to share about Christ with love to the millions and millions of indigenous peoples in the Americas. And instead, many Spaniards took advantage of, 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 of that opportunity for selfish gain and just decided to conquer and to enslave for money. And people like Montesinos in, in 1511 and Las Casas, you know, um, a, f- a few years after that said, the conquest is opposed to Christ. And he said very, they said very blatantly, um, if you don't change Spain, God's going to judge you and you're going to have eternal consequences to pay. 
from that to Cesar Chavez, who said, you know, most people have probably heard of Cesar Chavez, right? The leader of the United Farm Workers Movement, together with Dolores Huerta and others, and and Larry Itliong of, of, of the Filipino farm workers, right? They challenged these unjust, terrible exploitation and, and exploitative situations of, of farm workers in California in, in the in the mid 20th century. But faith was at the center. And Chavez, for example, said, the only justice is Christ. <laughs> and Chavez said things like, um, whereas most people who are drawn to activism fall away from the church, for me, it was the opposite. I drew closer to the church the more I learned. And, he, and Chavez also said, any social movement that's worth their salt, my paraphrase, he said, they, they have to reckon with the church as a powerful expression of God on earth. So there's, there's this whole 500-year history that the book talks about um, and theologies. I, we, could, we could have a lot, you know, of course, larger conversation about that, but um, it's like a forgotten history and a forgotten theology that's left out of our seminaries, out of our churches, out of our pulpits. Certainly, and I think that's something that really resonates a lot with, um, you know, those that either come into Latino Latina studies, Chicano studies, or, or broadly ethnic studies, right? There's this whole aspect of history, right? And so uh, that that when we start learning the history of, you know, our people, our communities, or other marginalized communities, you're like, wow, you know, you're, there's this eye-opening and expansive experience, right? Where you feel like so much has been kept out. And so this aspect that too, right? That there's, uh, you know, this aspect of, of, you know, social justice, of equity, uh, we're using very modern terms, but all these themes, as you, you know, as you point out, right, the explicit discussion of race, right, by the Las Casas and by others, right, very early, right, 1500s, um, you know, pointed these things out, um, you know, centuries ago, right? And so uh, I think that sense, yes, yeah, certainly that sense of, of being denied that history, both within institutional Christianity, right, um, and then within more broadly, you know, our educational experiences is very a common experience. And that ties into something that you, you discuss about the, the spiritual capital that Latinos possess. Um, can you talk more about that? For sure. So when I was writing this book, you know, like I realized I needed to have different bridges, intellectual bridges between Christianity and and academia, specifically ethnic studies, and, and vice versa, right? I said, how can I, what are the key concepts? What are some key concepts from ethnic studies that could help create a bridge to theology and vice versa? And in ethnic studies, in CRT, in education, uh, you know, there's an amazing scholar by the name of Tara Yoso, and she writes of this, of these concepts of, this concept called community cultural wealth. And she's, and, and you know, as an educator, you know, she's trying to figure out, you know, how do we improve educational outcomes, you know, among Latino communities, for example. And she looked at the literature, the existing academic literature, and she said, all this literature, most of it comes from a deficit model, meaning it all talks about how Latino students, um, they don't succeed in school because they're, they have a cultural deficit. They're not like white middle-class students. And the key to, to allowing them to succeed in education is to basically make them middle-class white students. <laughs> and, and she said, no, 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 no. Again, these are my words. She said, Latino students, students of color, bring to their K-12 through education and to the university, they bring distinct cultural capital, distinct community cultural wealth. 
right? And she lists them. She says they bring distinct linguistic capital, bilingualism, for example. They bring distinct familial capital and institutional capital and so forth. She, she enumerates a number of this, these forms of this community cultural wealth. And another scholar, Lindsay Perez Huber, um, she came around and, and she added one aspect of cultural capital. And she said, Latina, Latino students bring spiritual capital, bring spiritual capital with them. And the way that she added that was she interviewed and documented students at UCLA or at, at a big public university. And she interviewed them and she wanted to see what allowed them to succeed. Like, you know, this is like 15 years ago before DACA, before all these things, what allowed these students to succeed despite all the odds? And many of them kept talking about their faith. They said, God gives me the strength to, to, to do this. God provides for me and so forth. And so she added this, this element of, she said, you know, as people of color, we bring spiritual capital, right? And we need to kind of um, consider spiritual capital when we talk about uh, social justice and achievements and so forth. So I said, hmm, as a historian, it's impossible to ignore the fact that spiritual capital has been at the center of Latin American and U.S. Latino communities for 500 years. That's a, that's a, an essential part of community cultural wealth, the spiritual capital. And then I said, well, that's just like irrefutable. Right? Like, just look at it, right? Historically or now, the fact that over 80% of 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 Latinos in the U.S. and I don't know how many, what, what the numbers are in Latin America, but I know Latin America is one of the global hubs of Christianity, right? It's like spiritual capital is at the center. So I said, my argument is, if we claim to study and understand the Latino community, how can we not consider the role of spiritual capital? And that was the argument that I made, right, to my discipline, to our discipline, you know, and it's kind of hard to fight against that, right? Some people do, and I, but I'm not even putting a value judgment on it. I'm just saying, like, for better or for worse, you know, you can decide, but we got to consider it. Certainly, I think maybe some are going to hear, um, you know, the, the the title Brown Church, and they're going to wonder, okay, like, who is this? Where is this? Uh, do you have to be brown? You know, can you answer those questions for us? Totally. So by Brown Church, I'll kind of answer the question on several different levels. The simplest level is I'm defining Brown Church as the 500-year history of Latina, Latino, Christian social justice at its simplest level, right? So for over 500 years now, you know, we as Latin American descent peoples, faith in Jesus and social justice have gone together, right? And there's this whole history that no one's talked about. That's the first simplest definition. And I should say also, that's both Protestant and Catholic, as well, right? So Montesinos, he preached the first racial justice sermon against the conquest in 1511. That was like, what, maybe seven or eight years before the Protestant Reformation. So the Brown Church, it, it's, it, it, tra- it transcends, it predates, you know, our current religious divides. That's one thing. Another point. But by Brown, I'm, I don't mean a literal Brown. <laughs> so by Brown, I'm talking about a couple of things. First, a metaphor for the cultural diversity that is within our Latin American peoples, right? So, for example, you know, I did a DNA test, right? One of those, you know, and they're, you know, from a scientific perspective, you know, somewhat accurate, right? Um, 
sometimes not that accurate. But anyways, that being said, you know, I, I, I have everything in my in my gene pool, right? I've got, you know, indigenous from northern Mexico. I've got Basque. I've got Spanish. You know, my mom is from China. I've got, you know, um, you know, um, sub-Saharan African. I've got like South Asian. It's like, and, and you know, as, as Latinos, that's everything's in our in our bloodstream, right? We've got, you know, um, Argentinian, um, Jewish Latinos. We've got Armenian Latinos from wherever. We've got Asian Latinos. We've got Afro Latinos. We've got indigenous of Latinos of all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, and brown is a metaphor for all that. The fact that we have all of that in our heritage, in our corporate heritage, and that's a beautiful thing. Secondly, in the U.S. context, I'm referring to brown as those of us being Latino in the U.S. history. In U.S. history, we've always been in between the social and legal categories and political categories, for that matter, of white and black. Right? So I'm sure you've talked on this podcast, you know, about whiteness as a legal construct for, you know, many many centuries in the U.S. This legal identity that conferred special socioeconomic and political privileges, right? Like if you're, if you're, if you're legally, legally defined as white a hundred years ago, your kids could live where they wanted to, you know, you and your family could live where, where they wanted to live. You could send your kids to any school. You could sit in whatever church pew you wanted. You could join the legal profession or the medical profession without problems. But if you were not assigned that legal label of white, well, you couldn't get all those things, right? And if you're specifically, if you were legally defined as black, all those doors were closed to you, right? Well, as Latinas and Latinos, because of, of, of our diverse heritage, you know, we've always been kind of in between white and black, historically. Um, and, you know, for example, we went to the courts. Of course, you know this, and, and many of your listeners, right? A hundred years ago, when our kids were being segregated, we went to the courts and said, Your Honor, Mexican-American kids should not be segregated in, in public schools because we are legally white. That was that. So that I'm going to pause there because that blows most people's minds, right? And, right. And, and, the, and the judges would sit there for like three or four days. They, they'd invite academic experts from USC or UCLA, and, and they'd say, "Are Mexicans white?" And then, and then they would deliberate about it for a few days. And nine times out of ten, they'd say, "You know what? Mexicans are white. Um, you can't discriminate against them in housing or in education." But then the problem is we'd, we'd go back to our communities in L.A. or Pasadena or what have you in Texas. and People would still discriminate against us anyways. They'd just find other means, right? And so we've always had sort of some of the privileges of whiteness, but then never full inclusion. And so we've always been, you know, kind of legally and socially kind of what I call brown. So brown as a metaphor for that in-betweenness. And finally, I'll say you know, there's always been a few of us that if we have enough education, we have enough money, we can bust a Ted Cruz, right? <laughs> and try to just gain, try to just gain honorary whiteness. And it, you know, it's never been a perfect fit. But we can, we, we, but if we assimilate enough and just disregard where we came from, um, you know, that's a path. And I'm trying to argue also in 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 the brown church that we shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with, with, with you know, socioeconomic, um, you know, kind of you know, climbing the ladder ethically, but we should never forget, you know, the larger community of, from which we come. It's kind of like Moses, right? Moses went out and he saw the suffering of his people 
and he and he said, you know what? I can choose the riches of Egypt or I can choose my people. I want to choose my people, right? And, and, and that's kind of like Moses was also brown in that sense, kind of in between Egyptian society and, and, and his, his cultural heritage of, of, of being of the Israelites. And as Latinos, it's the same thing. Certainly. Uh, thank you for that. I'm thinking of brown uh, theology also, and so the you know the overlap between the brown church, brown theology, the book kind of chronicling, you know, providing an overview. And you state this right: this is not meant to be, right, comprehensive, like totally. But it's you know, let's just take a look. Let's span these 500 years. Let's pull some examples, right? And that's what you provide throughout these chapters. Um, but you even start a little bit, you know, before then with uh, you know Jesus himself, right, and how he himself had this type of radical manifesto, or he himself was seen as a radical and, and had a radical manifesto. Will you uh, discuss that for us? Sure. So one of my favorite parts of Latino theology is how they talk about Galilee. So, you know, listeners might be aware of the fact that in the Gospels, you know, the, the accounts of Jesus's life, they talk about how Jesus was raised in this place called Galilee, and he did most of his ministry in Galilee. He chose all of his earliest followers, his leaders from Galilee. According to, to our Christian tradition, he died and rose again and said, meet me in Galilee. Right? And Latino theologians like Virgilio Elizondo, Elizabeth Conde Fraser, Orlando Costas, um, Loira Martel Otero and others, they've, they've said, okay, What's, what's up with Galilee? <laughs> Why so much talk about Galilee? What they've said was, I mean, this is my words, Galilee was the hood of Jesus's day. Galilee was the ghetto, the barrio of Jesus's day, right? Galilee was this borderlands region on the fringes of the larger Jewish community. It was colonized by the Romans. It was culturally infringed upon by Hellenistic forces, right? Cultural forces, Greek forces of pressure, most Galileans were peasant farmers, and, and many of them had lost their lands because of oppressive, you know, colonization, taxes, and all kinds of things, right? And Galilee was even known as a hotbed of revolt, right? If, if you look at Josephus and folks like that that talk about it, right? And, and, and um, so Galileans were basically like, they were the oppressed people. They were, they were on the margins of society, right? As opposed to like the big city of Jerusalem, which was the center of political, religious, um, socioeconomic kind of power. And of course, you know, um, you can argue about the details here and there, but that, that was, um, you know, generally kind of an outline of, of what it was like, right? And so Latino theologians, they say that matters because when God came in Jesus Christ to make the whole world new and to start a revolution, he came as a marginalized Galilean, right? And it shows that God's heart, Jesus himself, right, in his humanity, right, sided with the suffering of the poor, right, as the place to start with social change and to fan outwards, right, to everyone. But he started in Galilee, and, and they articulate this principle called the Galilee principle. And they say, those that human beings reject, God calls God's very own. I'm going to say it again because it's so sweet and so wonderful, right? Those that human beings reject, God calls God's very own. And in all the ways we just talked about before, Jesus was brown. I mean, he was literally brown, probably, right? But but in all those metaphorical senses of being in between, 
and being oppressed and all those kinds of things, Jesus was also brown. Yeah, you know, right now I'm dwelling on uh, the, you know, the, the power of that message, right? And, and I'm even beyond, I'm trying to think of it even beyond as a, as a person of faith. You know, as a person of faith, I was raised in, uh, you know, Christian uh, religion and, and it's something I still participate in. And it's a big part of me. Um, but I'm even trying to set that aside, right? Because because there there are other historical religious figures, right? That that I have found inspiration in, and um, that appeals to me. And I just think, and I'm, as I'm trying to dwell here on why does that shock me so much? Why does it surprise me so much to think of Jesus as a as a brown person, both you know even literally and and metaphorically in, in his like social position? Um, I just think how much that hasn't been taught. You know how much that's just been masked by, again, history, by uh, institutional religion, um, and and I, I and I'm thinking about uh, maybe some of our, our listeners too that that might be surprised to hear that there's there's so much of it that rings true to me, and I can't remember you know how many years ago you know it was when I really started thinking about that. It's probably when you know I started you know, taking Chicano Latino studies classes, right? And really started getting into these these issues and topics and and thinking about okay. Um, other aspects of me, my belief system, my faith, and and uh, even maybe how I viewed, uh, you know, God and spirituality and how these things intersect. So uh, I appreciate you emphasizing that and um, just being able to dwell on it a little bit. Again, even thinking of it beyond, again, if I'm, say, someone that's not part of the, the, the Christian faith, just to to realize that, right? The, realize the social world that uh, Jesus himself uh, came up through the position of that region, right, within, you know, in, uh, you know, imperial, uh, you know, Rome, within, again, uh, uh, Judaism itself. Um, it's quite powerful, I just think, to, to think of that. So I appreciate you uh, explaining that. And, uh, and of course, uh, there's a lot of, there's, there's some great contributions that you've brought up by, again, the scholarly community and, and uh, you know, Latino theologians that have helped us to, to realize this. So I appreciate that tremendously. Thank you. I, I see my role as I'm just a bridge, right? I didn't make any of this stuff up. I'm not that smart, but I'm like, okay, let me create, let me be a bridge, right? And and that's how I view this whole concept of Brown Church in the book. Yeah, a puente, right? A bridge. Right. No, that's beautiful. I, I think you know, as educators, right? That's that's the profession we've we've uh, you know dedicated ourselves to and, and dedicate a substantial portion of our life to. That's what I feel like when I'm, you know, in the classroom, a facilitator, right? A bridge, trying to bring knowledge, uh, uh, you know, and tools, uh, to my students. So I appreciate that so much. So we've talked about, you, you've referenced some of, uh, you know, the, the early Brown theologians, um, you know, Montesinos de, la, de las Casas, uh, you, you also discussed Sor Juana, uh, there are others. Um, when we look at those, these say kind of early, you cover this in, in about two chapters, kind of early Brown theologians, um, what do you pull from there? So yes, there's this long history, right? It, it kind of starts a long time ago. Um, you know, there, there are examples, uh, uh, you know, again, within the colonial project very early on, somewhat a little bit later. Um, but if we're going to try to like kind of pull all that together, because then there seems to, what I want to get to is there seems, there's, there's, seems like there's somewhat of a little bit of a gap in between that. And I don't know, this can't be, again, entirely comprehensive and we're pulling key examples. But say from these early theologians, what do we, what do we get? What do we grasp uh, from, say, the first couple hundred years of Brown theologians and their contributions? 
I think they struggled with the exact same things that so many of us are struggling with, right? That borderlands mm. struggle that we talked about. Like, what is it? Is Christianity about Jesus and justice or is it about, you know, power and empire and money, right? They were all wrestling with those questions, you know, hundreds of years ago. And I think of another powerful example is Juan Poma de Ayala. And he was an indigenous writer and leader in, in what we call Peru now. And he wrote this whole book. It was over a thousand pages and it even had all these like powerful kind of illustrations that he drew himself. Right. And it's a thousand page book, right. Um, written in the um, late 1500s, I believe early 1600s. And he says, I'm an indigenous person. The Spaniards, first of all, don't value our culture as, as, as indigenous peoples. Our culture matters to God, and it's just as good as the Spanish. And then he says, you Spaniards, you don't really believe the words of Jesus. Right? And he, he quotes like Bible verses, and he like, and, and he, then he starts like, you know, telling Spanish leaders, he says, he basically says, you know, I care about Jesus. I love Jesus. And, and what the Bibles teach, but you guys are crazy. Right? So, so even like from an indigenous person from hundreds of years ago, he was able to you know sift through the difference. But then he, he wrote his whole book. His book was written with political motives too. And he said, we deserve, you know, to rule ourselves. Get out of here, Spaniards, right? We want Jesus, but we don't want you. Right? Like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so I think that we pull from that, you know, you know, People have always been able to to to, to sort of um, do the hard work. Again, it took him over a thousand pages, right? But <laughs> to say there's a difference between institutional Christianity that's aligned with empire and what it's really supposed to be about. Um, and you have people like also also like um, Garcilaso de la Vega el Inca, right, who has inspired you know much revolution in Peru. Right, he wrote a book and he was one of the first literal mestizos in Peru and Latin America. He wrote a similar book, Sor Juana, Ines de la Cruz, kind of the first person to actually, she's considered like the first feminist. Right. right? I mean, so, and she was teasing out the differences between, um, well, what does the Bible actually say in church tradition? And why does that not line up with the patriarchy of institutional Christianity? Right. And she writes so beautiful and so powerfully about how she was, she said from a very young age, she was just, she had the, like this fire of learning placed within her from, from God. Right. And she, you know, because all of the, her institutions of, of, of higher learning, you know, in the 16, 1700s in Mexico were reserved for men. She self-taught mm-hmm. herself. Right. She was a genius. Right. And she learned Latin and she read, read all the classics and she wrote some of the earliest theological, powerful theological treatises for why women should be able to study and be in leadership. It's just amazing, right? Again, you're talking about hundreds of years ago. So I think from the colonial period, I learned that like if, if someone feels like they don't belong in institutional Christianity, you're not alone. <laughs> and secondly, you know, you, you, you do have a home, right? Hundreds of years ago, the Brown Church was talking about these same things, right? And people held on to their faith and it was very painful, but they were able to distinguish between, well, what's just empire, and patriarchy, and, and what is what is the true Christian message? And I'm sorry that I'm kind of preaching. I'm a pastor, uh-huh. too, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, 
we have those deep historical roots. No, and I think that I think that's incredibly powerful, right? It's uh, you know I am at I'm at a, a university um, that that has a religious affiliation, and um, you know so this may be somewhat well I know it's not somewhat specific to us because I you know, I read the beginning of your book, <laughs> I see how students have, have, have struggled right uh, with these questions and this will, and I'm bringing this up because this is what they're pulling for, this is what what a lot of students and people beyond right the university setting right are trying to grasp right. Um, I've I've literally had people call me since I've been you know in my my position here at, at Brigham Young University, uh, other Hispanics and Latinos. They just call me out of the blue. They get my office number. They'll send me an email. And long story short, what they're looking to connect with, they're looking to try to understand how I make sense of who I am and where I am. Right, both within academia, within the church, and within this complicated history. Um, they also want to know if I can like pull this all together, that what they've experienced and felt as marginalized, say borderland subjects, as, as we discussed a little while ago, that, that they just weren't crazy, right? They just weren't imagining something, right? That the patriarchy that they, they felt, um, you know, that the, the racism that they felt, you know, while it may have been a microaggression or whatever we want to call those things right now, that, that it was legitimate. And I see mm-hmm. that's what these early theologians are dealing with, right? Um, both some of them deeply personal themselves are going through it and others witnessing it on behalf of others and, you know, like de las casas and wanting to be a voice, right? And it's this, you know, the strive for, again, that type of recognition, right, of, of what has actually happened. And that I'm not alone, right? In in what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, um, and and that we do deserve, you know, we, we deserve autonomy. We deserve, uh, you know, a a say in this project, right? Uh, again, whether it's uh, inst- whether it's religious, uh, you know, with within um, other institutional structures. So, um, yeah, I really see that thread coming through with, uh, you know, these early examples that you provide against spanning these, the first few, you know, hundred centuries, if you will, uh, but not few hundred, the first few centuries uh, of the colonial project that there, uh, these different scholars, theologians, right, thinkers are, are dealing with that similar type of the question. And, and as you point out, it's, it's a very deep history. So, you know, to those interested today, again, it, whether if you were looking at this at, at a secular lens, it's like, no, it's, you're not alone. This has been a very long struggle, right? And that's exactly what you're you're pulling together for us. Makes me think of like you know, when Brown Church first came out. There was a young Latina studying theology in Texas, and she wrote me an email, and she said, or I'm not sure, maybe it was Facebook, I forget. But she says, "I read Brown Church. Yes, you know, yesterday I I, I cried all night, and I'm so happy because I finally have a home." But she didn't just stop there. She said, I finally have a home. And she said, the funny thing is that f- that f- that home has been there all along. And that, that just like, oh, that was like, that's still my favorite, most powerful, touching, you know, bring me to tears sort of quote from anyone. Because, you know, she's recognizing, you know, I do belong. I do have a home. And secondly, that, but it's been there for 500 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no one told right. her about it, right? but no one told her about it. No, certainly. I think it's something we encounter so much. Um, you know, I think in our position as, as, as professors, um, you know, 
we are in so particularly professors of color, scholars of color. We're coming into contact with uh, you know students that are first gen, you know all this stuff, and and that's what they they want to know. And then also you have this aspect of faith too, right? They want to know if if they belong, right? If there's a space for them, and uh, and so certainly, you know, there, there's there's certainly there certainly is. Um, and again, this approach, what I try to what I want to keep emphasizing here is that it's it's even it's non-denominational, right? That there, I mean, it's not specific to just one branch of you know Christianity. And I would like to imagine I can't imagine too much out of it because again, that's just my particular faith position. But I just wonder how many others with uh, you know raised in various faith traditions, spiritual backgrounds, deal with these questions as not just as they confront the you know uh, you know the the inequity of you know social structure in in whatever their faith-based tradition is, but broadly, I mean, these questions apply. I have students ask me all the time, right? How do you, how do you still, you know, how, how can you teach American history now that you know everything you know, right? How can you mm-hmm. not just, you know, be there, you know, trashing it, right? And how can you still be a part of this, right? Why are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, physically where I am or, or as, you know, someone that has American citizenship, right? And, and those, how do you deal with that, right? And, um, you know, I think the message is that I try to give to them is that there is space, right? Because there have been people for a long time that have dealt with this issue. And if all of us just pick up and leave, right? I mean, what am I going to do? How can I, can I excise myself from the world itself, right? I mean, are there, there's inequity embedded within the world and it's, and this human condition, and that's not an excuse, but it's, it's, it's something to say that, you know, unless we seek to transform it and change it as, the examples you provide throughout your book have done, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know any other way to do it than to try to do that. Right. And, and say you belong right there space and we can change it. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I also identify with the struggle. Sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get my dual citizenship in Mexico and see you later. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's hard. Boy, you definitely have those moments. And, but I agree. It's like, I mean, we're part of that that 500 year struggle and we just got to hang in there. You know, it's hard, but I guess that's why we need community and we need, that's where, I mean, faith itself, right. Mm-hmm. But especially community, right. To know that we're not alone and to be, be in, in the struggle in La Lucha with, with other people. Certainly. So they, well, I'm going to, I'm going to jump forward quite a bit because our time's running short, but um, I want to talk, it seems to me that there's this moment in the late 1960s where there's a sort of revival that kind of happens. And it's not to imply that there's no one in the in-between years, but that, you know, the 1960s with all of the, you know, the, the social activism, you know, that occurred and, and, you know, just global, um, you know, issues around decolonial struggles um, that in that moment, there's this sort of revival that it seems, you know, to use a, a, a kind of gospel like term, if you will, um, for the Brown Church and within the Brown Church. Uh, can you discuss a little bit about that? Maybe like tying in kind of the developments of liberation theology and like the emergence of these radical evangelicals. For sure. Yeah. So like in the 1960s, right, you know, as, as, as we're all familiar with, you have sort of the rise like in the United States of the civil rights movement inspired by faith, right? Dr. King and others. Um, you have Vatican II, right? That happens, you know, that, that just sends shockwaves through the, the, the Roman Catholic world saying the gospel needs to be context, culturally contextualized uniquely, right? And mass and, and religious practices need to be conducted in 
the native languages of people, not just in Latin anymore. I mean, Latin mass is okay, but like basically Vatican II said, we need to, we need, yeah, yeah. The gospel needs to be contextualized wherever it is. And, and, and that opened up a, what, well, there's that, there was also sort of like different, um, Catholic social teachings that developed papal bulls, you know, even as early as the early 19th century, like Rerum, Novarum and others that, that, that said, you know, to care about the poor, to fight against injustice, like that's a core part of, of the Christian and Roman Catholic faith. So there were these, these sort of um, doors that were opening. And then in Latin America in the 1950s and then into the sixties, many Latin American priests were like, you know, actually, you know, they gathered in, in, in Medellin, Colombia, and they said, there's so much suffering. There's all these dictators that are doing all these crazy things. There's so much poverty. We can no longer ignore this. Like our faith does not allow us to ignore the suffering of the people. What do we do about this? And they framed um, this idea of liberation theology, the preferential option for the poor, uh, again, in the context of all these different sociological, historical kind of events, and liberation theology, in the words of of N.T. Wright, right, a theologian from England, he said, "Liberation theology reminded the global church that God cares about the poor." <laughs> right? huh. Like basically, pretty much, pretty much every Christian tradition in the globe, of course, there were some exceptions, had just stopped teaching about the poor and justice, right? And liberation theologian said. There are, look at these thousands of Bible verses, right, that talk about God's care for the poor and immigrants and, and all who are on the margins. We need to take this seriously, right? And the preferential option for the poor says, you know, God loves everybody equally, rich and poor alike, but God's heart breaks out of concern uniquely for the poor. And anytime a poor person is exploited, God takes their side. Right? That was the central message of liberation theology, right? It's kind of like... um. You know, I, I have two kids, right? Love them both equally. But if one of my kids is beating up the other one, right? in that moment, I have a preferential option for the kid that's getting beat up, right? right, right. My parental love compels me, right? And, and that's what liberation theology sort of was as a theology. And then it became embedded or embodied, right, in in many different ways, you know, trying to change policy and society. And it, it got really really crazy, right, in Latin America. Uh-huh. Um, there were also Protestants, Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar, and others um, from the Protestant side who, they were trained in the U.S. In, with um, U.S. campus ministry, with, with specifically the U.S. campus ministry of intervarsity, right? And um, they were trained in some good things, right? They were trained in the kind of personal dynamics of Christianity, right, of the gospel, that Jesus loves all of us, right, as individuals deeply, and cares about all of our suffering and what we're going through and wants to offer forgiveness and transformation, right. And healing, right. To each of us as individuals. Right. So they took that, that they took that personal message to, to college campuses in Latin America where they were from, right. They're Latin Americans and they'd go on to university campuses. Right. And they'd say like in Peru, believe the good news. Jesus loves you and wants to have a, a transformative personal relationship with you. Right. And some students would respond and say, okay, well, I guess that's, I guess that's okay. But what does this gospel have to do with the fact that my dad just got killed by the dictatorship that's sponsored by the U.S. government, right? My uncle got desaparecido, disappeared. Nobody on my block has food to eat. There's all this racialized injustice. What does this gospel have to say, right? 
and Padilla and Escobar and others, they took it very seriously. They didn't respond and say, oh, that's just CRT. (laughs) 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 They said, they just were very humble about it. And over years, many years, they framed a theology and a movement called Mission Integral to respond to that, right? And to understand the Bible and Christianity from a distinctly Latin American lens. And they said hard-hitting things, right? Like they said, like, we need to distinguish between what the Bible actually teaches and la ropa anglo-sajon that's been exported to Latin America, Latin American cultural clothing of the gospel, right? We got to just shed that, right? We need to distinguish between Christianity proper and just American cultural Christianity that ignores corporate greed and civil war and violence, right? All in the name of money, right? Uh And they framed this idea of integral mission or mission integral that said, The gospel is like a plane with two wings, the Christian gospel, right? One wing is is our personal transformation, right, in God, every aspect of who we are, right, personally transformed and healed and made new over our lives and eternity. But the second aspect, the second wing of the plane is, is God's redemption and renewal and transformation of all injustice, all poverty, all brokenness in society in whatever forms, right? And they said, you know, you need you need two planes of the wing, otherwise the plane doesn't fly. It's going to crash, right? And so Mission Integral in Latin America was a specifically you know, Protestant expression of justice and faith. It also, like, it, it kind of, I mean, I'll just pause there. That was the Protestant expression. And then, you know, um, later on, about, you know, more like in the 70s and 80s, you had people like Justo Gonzalez, and Virgilio Elizondo and others, right, in the U.S., who kind of like, they adapted those ideas to the U.S. context, and they developed uh-huh. specifically U.S. Latina, Latino theology, um, but specifically for the U.S. context, right? And they developed, you know, like that notion of, of the, Galilee, the Galilee principle, and what does it mean to have a distinct U.S. Latino theology that reflects upon immigration and poverty and gender and so forth. Right. And one of the, one of the things that I really appreciate the most is the theology that came from our, that came from and is coming from our Latina sisters, people like Elizabeth Conda Frazier and, and Loida Martel Otero and Isasi Maria Isasi Diaz. Right. And they've reflected upon kind of, the, the, the Latina experience, the female experience, and they said, God has a preferential option for women. Uh-huh. <laughs> and when a woman is oppressed in, in, a, in, in a patriarchal gendered relationship, God takes their side, the side of the woman. Right. Right? Right. Powerful, right? And they developed ideas like that that we could talk about. They developed an idea called lo cotidiano, like the daily or quotidian ex- daily experiences. And they said, you know what? God meets Latinas and all of us in our daily experiences of life, right? In the bus ride, two hours to get to our hard job, right? God meets us when we're, you know, our our moms or our our, our abuelas are cleaning someone's house or, you know, raising their kids or or, or building a roof for some rich family. Like in that daily experience, right? That's that's where we meet God most profoundly, right? And also from a an epistemological standpoint, right? That daily life is just as important as, as a source of knowledge as some 
hoity-toity, you know, professor getting a PhD from Harvard and writing 20 books, right? right. You know, it, it's like, yeah, sure, maybe someone's dad has a PhD from Harvard, but if I'm going to place a bet, I'm going to place it on the knowledge that my abuelita has, right? That my grandmother has, right? And my, because my grandma has a PhD from Lo Cotidiano, right? And of mm. course, not, not that it's a binary, but it's, yeah. Right. But it's, it dignifies that daily struggle of our families, right? And I just, that, that's a beautiful example of Latina theology. Um, and I just, I just love it. Yeah, no, me too. Thanks for, thanks for succinctly bringing that together for us. Uh, incredibly powerful um, messages. And I just see, you know, for me, it just even, I see the res- how this resonates even beyond, you know, uh, just is not just about, you know, uh, religion or specific faith-based, you know, denominations. I mean, the, the application for those messages and, and that type of theology is just uh, incredibly powerful uh, and transformative. Um, we we got to wrap up. I appreciate your time so much. I wonder if you could just bring, uh, tell us about the future. You know, we've, we've almost got to the present. We didn't quite get to the present, um, you know, of the Brown Church, but what about the present and the future of Brown Church? How do you see that, you know, moving forward? So if you look at data of, of the, the church in the U.S. and the church globally, the vitality of Christian faith is among Latinos, <laughs> immigrants, Latino immigrants, Asian immigrants, African immigrants in the U.S. and others, the black church. If you look globally, the pendulum of global Christianity is in the global south, <laughs> Latin America, Asia, Africa, Middle East, right? And so it's no longer accurate to say Christianity is a white man's religion because the typical Christian in the U.S. today is probably like a 30-year-old Nigerian man right, or woman, right? <laughs> right. And that's only going to intensify in the decades to come, right? And I think that there's so much community cultural wealth and spiritual tr- capital and treasure that is present in the Church of the Global South and that, and the Brown Church is part of that. And I look forward to seeing the ways in which the Brown Church and the Black Church and the African Church and the Chinese Church, etc., is going to bring that cultural treasure and wealth to bear in the future. And that that gives me hope. That's a perfect spot to end on. Thank you, Robert, so much for uh, joining us on New Books and Latino Studies and uh, for your tremendous uh, contribution through this uh, this wonderful book. Thank you, Brother DJ. It's, it's such a privilege to be here.